You know, every Lord's Day when I stand up to, to preach behind this pulpit, I'm reminded that we're not all in the same group, even though we're here together in the same church. There's uh, at least three groups that are here today. And there's at least three groups that are here actually every Lord's Day. You know, I have all three groups prayerfully in mind as I prepare a sermon for each Sunday. First, I want you to know that there's a group that we'd call the saved. There's a group here that are Christians that have been born again, saved by the grace of God. And I have each of you in mind in preparation for the message today, because what I, my prayer is that God would take His Word for every true believer here and bring hope, encouragement, joy, strength, growth in your Christian life. And my prayer for all of you is that God would take all of our time together as, as believers in this church, that He might bring you one day safely into His presence in heaven. And then there's a second group that are, that are here every Sunday, I believe. I re- realize that more than likely there's the unsaved that are here, the non-Christians that are here, the unregenerate that God brings into our path. And that might include the children that are here who have yet to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's often the case. Uh, it could be those who, who, you know, the doors of the church were just kind of sovereignly opened and, and you just wandered in today to be here, uh, not as a Christian, but to wonder what's going on in, inside that building. By the way, that's how God saved Mary and me. This is how God stay, saved Spurgeon. I know that uh, you might have heard the story of how there's a big snowstorm blew into London, and here he was, a young lad, and he, uh, he couldn't get to his own church, so he went to a primitive Methodist church, and even the guy who was preaching wasn't the regular pastor, it was just one of the men of the church. He probably never preached a sermon before. Little did he know he was going to be preaching to Charles Spurgeon, but uh, he said this, young man, and he was only like four or five people there in the congregation, you look very miserable this morning. And he responds, well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to having remarks like that made from the pulpit on my personal appearance. Uh, however, it was a good blow, struck right at home. And then he continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, the moment you obey, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted again like only a primitive Methodist could, You man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And that was his sermon. But that was the word that was used by the Holy Spirit to convict Spurgeon of his sin as a young man and, and, and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's why my heart is every Lord's Day for anyone that's here that has yet to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that there would, there would be a, a, a presentation, a, a call of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, that this might be the day that the Holy Spirit would convict you of your sin, produce faith in your heart, and draw you savingly unto Himself. But there's a third group. You say, wait a minute, if we have all the saved and all the unsaved, what's left? Haven't we got everybody? And the third group is, is you might call the false converts, the false professors, some of them call professing falsely their faith in Christ. 
these are those who profess to be Christians and maybe even believe in their heart that they truly are Christians, but they have never been saved and they've never been converted. And personally, I, if you ask my opinion, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I, I believe that uh, this is a pretty large group in evangelical churches across America today. This might even be one of the larger groups in some churches. Those who would profess faith in Christ, but they've never truly been converted in their heart. So to that group, you know, the message has been one of examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. Uh, you know, you might be one of the, those who have come to church today thinking you're a Christian. You might be a member of Redeeming Grace Church thinking you're a Christian. But in fact, from God's perspective, He knows that you're not. You might have deceived yourself into thinking you are. But there's all different ways you can arrive at that position. One is you could do so through some kind of an emotional experience you had when you were young. There's, there's those who get all excited because they've heard some kind of a message that stirred them emotionally. They might have walked down the aisle. They might have prayed a prayer. Might be that person that came from a heritage where, gee, for the last 10 generations, our, I've always gone to the same church my mom, my grandma, my great-grandma went to, and I'm just part of that religious tradition, and therefore I think that I'm a Christian. This group finds itself uh, in good company in Scripture. There's many biblical examples of those who are false professors. We can go as close to Christ as Judas himself, one of the twelve. He went to every sermon that Jesus preached. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He was part of the circle of 12 disciples. He saw not only the miracles, but at the very end, we see that he was not a true disciple, was he? In fact, he betrayed Christ as for a handful of silver. John warns in 1 John 2.19 of antichrists that are running around Antichrist with a small c. In 1 John 2.19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest how that they are not of us. And so he was aware as well of those who around him and in his ministry who were not true, true Christians. And there will be those on Judgment Day that are going to be surprised. It's better to find out today than it is on Judgment Day if you're a false professor in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 7, our Lord warns that He says, On that day many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons in Your name and and do many mighty works in Your name? And then those haunting words that came from the lips of our Lord, it says, Depart from Me, you workers of what? Iniquity. They were never converted in the heart, but they didn't find out until Judgment Day. It was too late. I'm sure they were surprised. And for those who might be here who are false converts, who have never truly come to a real saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I bring you the words of the Apostle Paul, which is to examine yourself, to make sure you're of the faith. To look to your life, to the life of fruit and life, and make sure that the living God is in you. The Holy Spirit indwells you and empowers you. 
Oh, that uh, you might be found that to humbly come before the Lord Jesus Christ and truly be saved. Now, last week we saw that because of the death of Christ in the first four verses of Romans 8, he tells us we've been given life. And so we're seeing as we enter into the eighth chapter of Romans this, this wonderful doctrine of, of sanctification. You know, we've looked in great detail at the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We're justified. We've trusted in Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to us. We have forgiveness because our sins were imputed to Him. And all that was accomplished on the cross through the shed blood. Therefore, we're not guilty. We're not guilty. We have everlasting life. And we'll never lose that life. In verse 3, we saw the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Then it doesn't stop at forgiveness and righteousness. It goes on because the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings sanctification into the life of the believer. And what we're going to be seeing in Romans chapter 8 is that those two can never be separated. If you believe in Christ, trust in Him, have repented of your sin, if you've been born again, if you're a new creature in Christ, you will be sanctified. The two always go hand in hand. You can't separate them. You've been given a new heart. You have a new power, new desire to keep the law of Almighty God. The law of God becomes your passion now. becomes your delight. It becomes your joy. Then God gives you the power to, to actually live out that life that He calls us to in His Word. And we're going to be seeing how the Holy Spirit, when he, when he comes within the life of a believer, He transforms everything. He doesn't just make you over a little bit. I mean, you become a totally transformed person from head to toe, a new creature in Christ. Verse 4, now, He says, now... In light of all that Christ has done, your walk, your conduct, your demeanor in life has changed. And you no longer walk according to the flesh we saw last week, but now you walk, your your deportment is one of according to the Spirit of God. That's sanctification. And that's what we're going to see spelled out in great detail for us throughout the, the eighth chapter. Now saved, you have life through the Holy Spirit. He's in you. He's changing everything about you. He's transforming you. He's giving you new affections, new will, new actions, a new heart towards the law of God. And only, there's only two, two groups of people in verse 4. Do you remember who they are? Christians and non-Christians. That's it. Believers and unbelievers. The saved and the unsaved. But a dramatic change has taken place. And that's why Ephesians 10 is tacked on to the end of verse 9 of of that wonderful passage on salvation. You know, for by grace are you saved, what? Young people learn this in vacation Bible school, right? For by grace are you saved through, through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone would boast. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God had prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so there you see that the the sanctification cannot be separated from justification. You believe, you trust, and you will do good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the world for you to do. 
And he's equipped you through the indwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit. So as we're going to see in today's passage, that Paul is going to give us what I believe is a graphic description. He's going to break it down a little bit for us to see what it is, the heart of the, of the non-Christian. And we're going to see the heart of the Christian. And what we're going to see, they are about as far apart as you can possibly get. That They're not anywhere near the same. We're going to see the wicked inward heart of an unbeliever. We're going to see that the Christian is, is not a Christian that's spiritually made over with some painted lipstick on. on. It's, it, it's different than that. It's a person who has been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, it's my prayer this morning that those of you who are walking after the flesh, those that's Paul's code words for an unbeliever, those of you who are walking after the flesh, who are unsaved, all non-Christians here today will be brought to see your need for Christ. That would be, that'd be an answer to my prayer, and maybe the prayer for other believers that are praying for you, even this morning. Secondly, it's my prayer that all who walk after the Spirit, though those are Paul's words for who? For Christians that are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, who've been saved by the blood of Christ, who have been bought, and, and that, that you'll be pressed by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in that faith that He's put within you. And you'll respond with a heart of worship and praise and joy and life and, and, and the sanctifying work that flows from that changed life. And for those of you who are in that third group, by the way, the third group is really unbelievers, right? It's just like there's only two categories, believers and unbelievers, but perhaps a subset of, of an unbeliever who thinks they're saved, who's professing faith in Christ. Uh, don't want to be deceived into thinking that you're something that you're not. Whatever deception is in your heart, I pray that God would open your blinders to see the deception that might be there how you were fooled either by yourself, by the devil, uh, to thinking that you might have a relationship that is, doesn't even exist. May God use the vast differences between that of a believer and an unbeliever to help you see where your standing is before your Creator. And you see how dramatic that, that difference is. So these five verses might humble you into clearly examining your own heart to see if you're truly in the faith. And if not, flee to Christ. We're going to see. It's like, it's like young man, you know, flee to Christ. He will save you and he alone. So let's pick it up at verse, uh, verse 5. And if you've been in our hermeneutics class during Sunday school, you know, we found out opening conjunctions are, and prepositional phrases and all of these parts of speech are very, very important. All, all this. So where does it begin? The word for, a conjunction. And there we have a connecting word that takes us back to, from five to where? To four. And what you're going to see is the passage I just read, five, six, seven, and eight, that is one big unit, one big unit of thought. So what we have really is the four takes that one big unit of thought from five through eight and connects it directly to what Paul just said in verse four. And what Paul is doing here, he's reminding us that everyone walks according to the flesh 
or according to the Spirit. For, and now he's going to tell us how that life in the flesh works its way out and how the life in the, in the Spirit works its way out and why those two are so different. So Paul's reminding the church of Rome that there's two groups of people. He's going to describe how the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does a radical transformation in the heart of a Christian who's walking after the Spirit. And you're either walking according to the flesh or you're walking according to the Spirit. There's no mystery in between. There's no straddling between the two. You're one or the other. And, and I'm, I've broken the organization of this passage down into each group, even though it's not exactly the way that the passage flows. But I want to look at, first of all, of the heart of the unsaved person, the person who walks according to the flesh. If you're without Christ, you, you, you're without the Spirit, how do you think? What goes on in your mind? And he says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. First, those of you who live according to the flesh, that is, those of you who are not in Christ, those of you who are not saved, those of you who walk after the flesh, that's the manner in which you live, you are one who sets your mind, your thoughts, your disposition on the things of the flesh. Your inward frame of mind is, is, is focused on those things that are earthly, those things that are fleshly. In Philippians 3.18, Paul also writes, For many of whom I have often told you and tell you now, you even with the tears, he says, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. You see how that works its way out in an unbeliever's life. Your thoughts, your bent of life is towards those things that are not spiritual, but those things that are fleshly. And so that means your passions. That, that, that means your, your, your inward heart is towards those things that are contrary to the will of God. Your heart's bent towards sin. Your focus is on yourself. This is the mark of an unbeliever. The inward force of materialism, for example, marks your life. And you're driven by things and the acquisition of things. It's an inward controlling that, that, that's there. It's a force that's within that, that, that always pushes towards sin. And therefore, you cannot fulfill the law of God. Your minds aren't heavenly. Your minds are not for the glory of God. Your minds are not for praising him and all that he's done and seeking his will. And therefore, we see the second mark of, of the heart of a person who walks after the flesh is they're dead. They're spiritually dead, he says. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. To be carnally minded is death. No life, no Holy Spirit. A sinful or fleshly state of mind is death. And I believe death here might be understood as in the sense of a spiritual separation from God, a, the opposite of spiritual life, an alienation from God, a, an alienation from holiness. It's the way Isaiah uses the word in Isaiah 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have made 
a separation. So your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his and your sins have hidden his face from you. That he does not hear your prayers. So death brings an estrangement between you and God. You have no relationship with God. Just death. And so why is the mind of the flesh death? And the answer is that because the third mark is you're hostile towards God. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's four, because the mind that is set on the flesh has a hostility towards God. An enmity towards God. Uh, uh, God is the enemy. And so you stand in opposition to God. So you can be a professing believer, and your whole life can be marked by what? Standing in opposition to the very God you say that, you, that saved you. By not doing or having a heart to do what He wants, by not delighting in who He is. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So it's enmity with God. It takes aim at God. It's a life with a mindset of God is the enemy. His will is the enemy. And I'm my own Lord. And I'm going to do what I want with my life. Oh, I'm a Christian too. And I'm going to heaven. No, you're not, he says. No, you're not if, you, if your heart is at war with God. Not if you're a rebel against your Savior. And then look at this. He says, for if it does not submit to the God's law. Indeed, it can't. If you're an enemy of God, it's, it's impossible for you to even... Not only do you not want to submit to God, you can't submit to God. You're spiritually dead. So if you walk after the flesh, you're self-focused, you do not have a heart of submission to God and His will, you're controlled by your sinful nature, God is your enemy... You will not submit and you cannot submit to the will of God. Therefore, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the bottom line is you, you can't please God. There's, there, there's no way that, that God is pleased by anything that you do in re- rebellion to Him. The purpose of human life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The, pur- the purpose for God putting us on this planet is, is to please Him. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but our, that's why we're here, to please God with every part of our being. Philippians 4.18 says, I have received full payment and more, talking about gifts that were given to Him to distribute to the needy. And I... Well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable to God, and you know what? Pleasing to Him. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So the life of faith and obedience in the Christian life is a life that, that God delights in. It brings, it brings delight and pleasure to God. Remember the verse, uh, was it Hebrews 11? says what? Uh, 
without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith pleases God. 1 John 3.22, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And so we see a summary of, of, of an unbeliever, those who walk according to the flesh. Number one, it's a life of a really outward rebellion against God, and it's just a dead shell of unbelief. It affects the way you think. You think of yourself. You think of the flesh. You do not think of things above. It affects the way that you you're, you're, you're no longer have life, so you're spiritually dead, and you stand in hostility to God. But, here's the good news, for Christians that are here, another group, a transformation has taken place in your life. Do you realize that? We've been seeing that in the last chapter or so, but uh, the Spirit of God has come to indwell us. We have the life of God within us. And we see the heart of the, of the saved person, in contrast to the unsaved, those who walk after the Spirit, how do they think? Well, as believers, verse 5, but those who are live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's where our minds are. That's what drives us. Unlike the unsaved, the, the true Christians set their minds on things above, things that are holy, things that are godly, things that are, that are pure. And this describes how you are under the government of the Holy Spirit who is in you. The mind has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, and now, how do you think? How do Christians think? How do you think? What drives you in your life? I mean, as I see a life driven by the Holy Spirit and a transformation that's taken place within, your desires change. Your affections change. The things you think about, your intellect changes. And your will changes. The things you desire and purpose in life, they all change. Everything becomes new in the Christian life. You now have a love for God in your heart you never had before. You have a joy, a joy that's eternal. We've been singing hymns up here on, 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 the, on the screen. And, and, you know, you can go through those hymns in kind of a dead roteness and, you know, have them come out and the words, you know, you mumble the words. That's death. But life is a life of the Holy Spirit within that brings joy and delight in singing praises to our Savior. A passion to keep His law, a power for ongoing victory over sin. This is the power in the life of God. A desire for holiness, a desire for purity. These are the evidences of God doing a changing work in our heart. Emotions filled with joy and praise. Delight in gathering on the Lord's Day. This isn't just some religious exercise we're doing here. We're checking the box, hoping that God's going to be happy with us. This is our delight. We're praising the God of the universe, the Savior who saved us. And this should be really a heart of just emotional joy and delight. And even the fellowship of the saints, loving the brethren is one of the mark of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I love the brothers and sisters in Christ. I love being with God's people. I love gathering together. I love fellowship meals after church. I love to sit down and eat with one another and talk about the things of the Lord. Why? Because God has put life in my heart through the Holy Spirit. 
He's done a work of transformation. And he's given me a mind that wants to grow and to know God better. These are the things that honor Christ. And that leads to the second point for the believer is this, verse 6, life. We see death came to those who are what? Without Christ, those who are in Christ, who walk according to the Spirit, verse 6. But to set the mind on the Spirit is not death, it's life and peace. What a contrast. There's that word but again, a contrast. But the Christian mind is set on the Spirit. It's set on life and it has life. That's our state of mind, life. That's our position with, with God, life. In John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And that's, that's really the big difference between us and a non-Christian. The non-Christian is marked by death, spiritual death. Everything about them is dead. And those who are in Christ are marked by what? Life. And the life of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And notice how, again, this, this is connected with peace. The, you're not hostility. That, that's the unbeliever. And the mind of the Spirit of li- is life and peace. So when you're the unsaved, you don't, you don't have peace with God. You're at war with God. You're at enmity with God. And here he says peace. You know, I was thinking about that word this last week, and I was wondering, what does that mean, we have peace as Christians? Does that really mean that our, our life is just one of a smooth sailing and the sea of tranquility of life that uh, never has bumps and ups and downs and adversity? Life's an uneven keel. Is that how your life is? Always calm? I would say no. I mean, our life's much more complex than that, right? I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I just look at some of the examples of Scripture. Men that I knew knew God. People like the Apostle Paul that we just read about in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, I'm, he's having this, this wrestling battle. With it. it didn't seem like he had real peace over sin or no, no sin in his life. He was wrestling. And finally he cried out, Oh, wretched man that I am. I mean, that's, that's not a, you know, just sailing on, on a tranquil sea. It's the opposite of alienation. I mean, David, read through the Psalms. You think he had just kind of a calm, peaceful life? But he's a man of God. Think of Peter. Did he ever struggle? Was he just kind of on a smooth cruise, I mean, all the way through life? I don't think so. No. The tranquility of heart, I believe, that comes from knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you have peace. Now you have peace with God. You're no longer at war with Him. He's not at war with you. It's the opposite of alienation. You've been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ and now you have peace with God and through His Son, Jesus. You can be comforted by a verse like Isaiah 26.3 that says you keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. And this is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every true believer. Have you witnessed that change?
Are you growing in holiness? Is there a spiritual life in your heart? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Do you have a knowledge of God that as you read His Word, you're drawn to His words? You want Him to speak to you His will. Oh, that your mind might be growing in the things of the Spirit, growing in, in the very knowledge of the, of the God who created you, growing in life, growing in peace, growing in holiness. You know, this is going to tie in when we get to Romans chapter 12, you know, where we see we get to the practical application of all this glorious gospel doctrine that we've seen in the first 11 chapters. Do not be conformed to the world. Remember he says that? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, that's where all this takes place. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and what is acceptable and perfect. Now, there's one last group I want us to look at. This group isn't directly spoken of here in this passage. But that's the group that I pray for each Lord's Day. And to you I direct His Word. One more category. Those who believe they're saved and they're not. This is a subset, really, of being an unbeliever, right? The only problem is you don't know you're an unbeliever. Uh, which I think really puts you in a very precarious situation. I mean, it's, 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 it's much better, and I, I've, I've shared this with my kids, it's much better that you deny Christ and you stand before Him as an unbeliever, knowing exactly who you are and what your relationship is to Him, as opposed to being one who thinks they're saved when they're not. At least the one knows where he needs to go and, and, and who he needs to turn to. The one who's deceived, the one who thinks they're saved and they're not, does not. In, in, in some way, it's better to be a Christopher Hitchens, an anti-theist, who hated God, who hated Christ, who verbalized it, who debated it, who wrote about it, than to be one who thinks everything's just okay with me and God, but my heart's just as wicked as a Christopher Hitchens. Did you see the difference there and why one might, I mean, they're both awful. I'm not saying one's better in the sense of it's good, but at least there, there seems to be more hope, more hope when, if you know where you stand. You know, when God saved me, I was an atheist. And then God just changed my heart. But to be one of these churchgoers, it's just generation after generation that goes to church and sings songs and reads Bibles and thinks everything's okay between me and Jesus, once saved, always saved, nothing ever, I'm okay. Wow. That's like taking a nail and driving it into your spiritual coffin. God can save you from that too, but that, that's, the, that, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a dangerous place to be. Be headed for eternal destruction and think all is well with your soul. Maybe there's some of you that come here on Sundays and you sing the hymns, but you do so without any heart, without any life in the songs that you sing. You listen to sermons. Perhaps, perhaps you pray prayers. And if you look deep in there, you see deadness, you see coldness, you see just intellectual deadness. Your prayers don't seem to get any higher than the ceiling. And perhaps you're here with a false sense of assurance today. 
You walked down that aisle as an eight-year-old and you thought, okay, I'm, I'm saved. And maybe you were. But then what you need to do is examine yourself, as Paul says. And he says it over in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Examine yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Don't just go to some spurious decision you made and just bank your eternal destiny on that without seeing any life of the Holy Spirit within you. Any transformation that's taken place. I mean, perhaps you've been deceived. I mean, the enemy goes around. He's disguised as an angel of light, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Do you think he could fool you? Could he deceive you? 1 Timothy 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. Could you be deceived? Teaching the teachings of demons. It's easy to be deceived. Oh, listen, never, never shirk from, from a willingness to let, let the Spirit of God sort through things in your life and to see whether or not you are a man or a woman or a child of the faith. It's so easy to be deceived, even to your own destruction. You know, I've shared this with you before uh, in various settings, but also I want to share it again because I, I wrapped my brain trying to think of a better illustration than this one, and I couldn't, so I'm going to share it again, perhaps if you, have, if you heard it before. But many years ago, when I was at Trinity Bible Church, there was a family that was going through some marital problems. And uh, this is a really dear Christian family with a couple of kids. And one day she tells her husband, I'm leaving you, and I'm leaving the kids. He's, you what? This would be the last couple in the world you'd ever expect to hear that from in the church. It was one of those kind of couples. And so, yeah, she said, I just met a man on, online who lives in Turkey. Oh, really? And you're going to leave me and the kids for this man you've... Turkey online? So the elders went over to visit, and uh, of course, one of our elders, Tim uh, Feathers, was at the time chief of police. Had a lot of training in interrogation, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of training in the area of, of online fraud and deceit. And so we, we, we go into the house. And she said, I'm leaving my husband for this man in Turkey who's coming in next week. I'm going to fly back with him. And I'm going to leave my children and my, and my husband. And I love what Tim said. He said, uh, tell me one verifiable thing you know about this man. One verifiable thing you know about this man that you're going to leave your children and your husband for. And she ran off, went to the bedroom. She came out with a piece of paper. She printed up a picture of a man from, from Turkey. Here's his picture. And, of course, Tim says, oh, really? How do you know that? How do you know that's his picture? Maybe it's her picture. Maybe it's a child's picture. You have no verifiable information about this man that you're going to leave your spouse for, not counting all the issues of trafficking and things that are going on in the world, taking people to other countries. She says, it's too late, I'm in love. 
And then the following week, off she went in the big jet to Turkey, and she was never to be heard of again. I don't know what happened to her, but she was deceived. She was deceived based on some things that were said on the Internet and a picture that was printed up on a printer. You say, well, how can anybody be so silly, so stupid? Uh, Well, do people do the same thing with her soul? Do they listen to the enemy whisper things into their ear? And they end up with a, a false faith. And they, they're willing to believe in Christ all the way to the end, but, but not with a saving faith, to their own destruction. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If, in fact, the spirit of the flesh dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You know, if you're here as a professing believer, there's all kinds of ways you can be deceived into making a profession of faith that falls short of true salvation. By the way, if you don't know our doctrine here, we do believe when God saves you, He saves you eternally. So we don't believe you lose your salvation. That's not part of this argument. But the, the enemy will come to you and say, well, sure. Uh, you can be saved without repentance. Just believe in Jesus in your head. that He rose from the dead on the third day. That's a faith that will not save. You can't hold on to your sin and then hold on to Christ through faith. Or just believe intellectually. Have someone give you all the answers, all the questions about Jesus. And you say, okay, I get it. Now I believe. But it doesn't touch your heart. It doesn't touch the area of sin. It doesn't touch the area of of your emotion. It's just an intellectual faith. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to over the years that have that intellectual faith. And it's strong because we put so much faith in our mind and what we can think and what we reason. Not realizing we can be deceived. And then there's those who might be tempted to have just an emotional faith. I mean, the most extreme example I ever heard of that was a guy sharing his testimony. And I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, I was in the shower. I had this tingling from head to toe, and I knew it was God. I said, oh, really? Were you using Irish Spring? And so we have these, 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 this faith that falls short. And then we put all of our hope in it. Where we read things and say, well, we never can lose our salvation. But you've never had your salvation. So you're locked in. Or you're believing in a Jesus of your own imagination. That's a form of idolatry. Do you realize that? So I'm believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Jesus Christ that I'm believing in has nothing to do with the Jesus Christ of the Bible. It's the Jesus Christ that I've invented in my mind. He's the one I want to follow. Or anytime you put a plus sign after faith, believe in Jesus, plus, plus, do this, plus, do that, plus, be baptized, plus, do this, plus, add a work to it, and you've now done away with what? True saving faith. Doctrine of justification by faith alone. No wonder Paul calls us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. 
to make sure, make sure that we're not deceived, to look at, at the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit through the lens of, of the Word and see if it's true of, of my life. Make sure you, you, you're not just professing a justification that has no sanctification linked to it. There's no radical transformation that's ever taken place in your life. You're not going to be perfect. You're still going to sin. We saw that in Romans chapter 7. But the change is there. The battle's on. At least you're in a spiritual warfare. So how do you think? Are you driven by the things of the flesh? Are you spiritually dead even though you profess faith in Christ? Are you lifeless without the Spirit of God? Are you hostile to God? Are you living a life that's not pleasing to Him? And if that marks you and you're professing faith in Christ, repent and turn to Christ. Flee to Him. Flee to the work that He's done on the cross. That's your only hope, what Christ has done. It's your only hope in in believing that His death on the cross, His taking the wrath of the Heavenly Father upon Himself on our behalf is the only hope that I can have for a right relationship with God. And quickly, let me conclude by verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, church, but you're in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you do not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you, as evidenced by life, an enlivening transformation, you do not have Christ. You're not saved, he says. And by the way, this flies in the face of a modern, modern teaching you might hear of, a, of the necessity of a second blessing. That I can believe in Christ and then have a second blessing and a second baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever, and then I, I can receive the Spirit of God then. No. The moment that you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is telling us here, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then he says, you're not one of mine. You're the temple of God, Peter tells us. So herein is the heart of every true believer. Hopefully you can see the heart of those, the heartlessness of those who are unbelievers. And hopefully any deception in your heart can be stripped away by the Holy Spirit Himself, you might see Christ, Christ alone, as your Savior and Lord. Father, we close thanking You, Lord, for speaking to us this morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's a sobering thought to realize that uh, we are what we are by Your grace, and that Your grace is a grace that not only saves, but it's a grace that sanctifies. Oh, Lord, we... We are grateful as as your church that we have within us yourself, God, Spirit of Christ within us. We thank you for the life that's in us, the joy that's in in, in within us. Even thank you for the warfare that goes on because you are in us. But we also thank you for the victory which will be ours. And that day when we see and peer in the face of our Savior and see his eyes and see all that he's done, his hands and his feet. And we realize that uh, what, what a Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. And we pray, Lord, for anyone who might be here today who, whose faith might be spurious. It might be a faith that is falling short of true salvation. 
Oh, Lord, may this passage bring clarity to where they stand with you. And, Lord, if they find themselves falling short, may they fall to, to, to the very, on their knees in the very presence of Christ, repenting and confessing Him today as their Savior and Lord. Father, we, we, we praise you again for this passage in Jesus' name. Amen.